Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to come before you, Lord. I pray that you would... That, that we would all have open, soft hearts to receive your word today. Uh, speak to us in whatever way you have. Lord, I know you so often work and speak to us in different ways, even within the same room to the same group of people. Lord, we hear, we hear what it is that you want us to hear. So, Lord, I pray for that this morning, despite the things that I have to say, Lord. Let them be all of yours anyway. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Last week, there were a couple of things that we uh, looked at that just kept coming back up in my life this week as well. I just want to hit on a couple of those things. One of the things was God encouraged them to say, first of all, he said, the firstborn belongs to me. This is what God said. The firstborn belongs to me. And so you will offer the firstborn to me. He also said that when you bring an offering to me, I want it to be your best. I don't want the leftovers. I don't want the thing that you've used up, the three-legged lamb, uh, the the ox that's uh, not working hard enough anymore. Don't bring me that. I want your first, and I want your best. And that phrase kept going through my mind this week, first and best, first and best. And And the idea was God kept asking me, am I getting your first, and am I getting your best? You know, the first belonged to God. It was his. He's even the firstborn child belonged to God. Only obviously he didn't say come and sacrifice your firstborn child, but they were required to bring a sacrifice on behalf of their firstborn child. And so God says, I want your first, but I also want your best. That was the other times when they were to bring sacrifices. It was their best, not their uh, leftovers, not their leftovers. We should understand that concept, right? We should understand that leftovers aren't the best thing. Leftovers. Would you ever come home? Sometimes I'll come home and I'll say, Deirdre, what are we having for dinner tonight? She'd be like, oh, leftovers. And I'm like, wee! (laughs) I'm usually like, okay. (laughs) Because if it was so amazing, we probably would have eaten it all that first night. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We know leftovers aren't the best. That's why they're left over. Shh. Maybe you just maybe you just made too much. I get it. I'm trying to make a point, Jan. God doesn't want your leftovers. He wants your first and he wants your best. So are we bringing him our first? And our best. He also said, and we looked at this, that you're going to be set apart by the people in the land that you're going into. And one of the ways that you're going to be set apart is through some dietary restrictions. And we looked at some of those things. These are the clean animals. You can eat these. These are the unclean animals. Don't eat these. And, you know, at one point he says, you know, don't eat the animal that you find dead along the side of the road. Doesn't seem like a hard commandment to me to follow, but the point was that he said, you could give that to your neighbors or the stranger in your land. It was kind of God saying, there's nothing wrong with it physically, but you're not to eat that 
because you're going to be set apart through various things. Dietary restrictions was one of the things that was going to set them apart, make them different. We looked at this last week where in Acts 10, you know, God, uh, Jesus gives Peter a revelation. He says, now all things are clean. And he was, he was showing him through a, a kind of like a, a food picture that now the gospel message was for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. But the idea was that he removed the dietary restrictions as the thing that was going to set them apart. And he said, and now it became the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. And that's, man, that's so important. That you are free to eat bat if you choose. There is no diet. Yeah, I, everyone's like, bat. Okay, ostrich. I don't know, whatever. Hawk. Bald eagle. Don't eat bald eagle. Um, the, 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 there is no dietary restriction attached. The, what sets you apart is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus will later say, they will know you are my disciples for your love for one another. Right? What, is, what do we say? The Holy Spirit brings what? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, which produces joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Love. You will know, they will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. That's the distinction. That's the thing that now sets you apart than everybody else. Eat ostrich, but love one another. Lastly, last week, one of the main themes we talked about was being extraordinarily generous. Well, we covered it in a bunch of ways. It was the idea of, of tithing and that being not transactional, but being relational with God. It's, it's an it's a act of worship in relationship with God. Tithing and the idea that so many people get hung up on, well, is it a tenth and is it of the net or is it of the gross? That's gross. That, if you're, that's just gross. It is gross. God will later say it's a free will. Give, give however you're able, however you're willing. Don't get hung up on the 10th. And it's not always about money. We were talking about uh, on, on soap on Saturday morning. Um, the, the, one of the verses I looked at was the idea that Paul was intentional about how he spent his time. We use that phrase, how do you spend your time? It's like we're equating time with money. The idea, there's even a saying, time is money. The idea was, how do you spend your time? If you had to give $100 for every hour that passed by that you sat in front of the TV, how long would you sit there? How, do you think we would be binge watching Netflix if it was $100 an hour? Tithing is an act of worship. It's not a financial transaction. And being extraordinarily generous, you know, we talked about that last week in terms of the idea of how you, uh, how, what is your attitude towards those around you when they are in need? And the idea is, again, we went even deeper in this on our Thursday night group, the idea that it's, it's an attitude of, well, you know, I always am going to have, so I always give, but God reminded them, you used to be slaves, and I brought you out out of the generosity of my own spirit and compassion. Now you be generous. And oh, by the way, you could be poor next week, next month, next year. You could be the one who is in need also. Today in verse, uh, chapter 16, we're going to talk a lot about some feast days. I just want to give you a little, a little bit of a breakdown. 
these feast days were specific days of worship involving offerings and meals. They were, that's why they're called feast days. They were to bring offerings, but those offerings were also meals that they were to have together. That really says something about God. I, I think God likes feasting. I hope so. Anyway, at least, you know, that's why we're called Calvary Chapel. <laughs> but look at, the, look, at the, look at the comparison. The feast days that God was giving them said, bring an offering, let's sit down together and feast together in worship. The pagan rituals were, hey, bring your newborn baby, set it on the scorching hot fire and burn it up and worship me. God said, no, 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 bring your offering and let's enjoy it together. Partake with me, be in relationship with me. And so all of these feast days has uh, an offering part that they bring, but it also comes along with this amazing feast that they had together. Ah, I really love that, that idea. And uh, he sets up three times in this chapter. There, there were seven or eight, depending on how you break it down, but three is what he's going to talk about here. And he sets up these three times that they were, are required to come to the place that he chooses. Now, for a while, it's wherever the tabernacle is, but eventually it's going to be the temple in Jerusalem, and they would be required to go there to offer up their offering and to partake in the feast. But the point is that he requires them to do it. They, if, you're, if you were a, a Hebrew and a man, you had to go. You were required to go. And there, sometimes a lot of people get hung up on this idea, like, I can't, you know, that's so, like, he, he required, they had to go, they had to go to this feast. And if, if you're sitting there and you're thinking that too, that's because there's a spirit of rebellion in your heart. And we keep talking about this. When God says, just do this, and you're like, well, why do I have to? It's rebellion. Because we know who God is. We understand who God is. And when God says, I want you to do this thing because it's the best thing for you and to be in relationship with me, then we say, okay, I'm going to do that. Rather than say, but why, God? Can't you explain it to me and break it down? Because I'm not sure I agree. It's really what we're kind of saying. But the, the cool thing is that God says, I'm requiring it, not because I mean, but because I know how busy you get in your lives. And if I require it, then you'll just make it a part of your life. And then we know that we're always going to have these times together to come together and to, to feast together and that you can get into right relationship with me. And so by requiring it, he's really helping them out, isn't he? He's saying, you're just going to have to now build this into your schedule and now you won't forget or now you won't ignore it or now you won't look at your circumstances and say, well, I'm really too busy to make it this year. It was a part of what they knew they were supposed to do, but God says, but it's for your good so that you can be in relationship with me in the way that I know is going to be the best way. I think about what things in our lives does the Lord require us that we may be missing out on blessing because we rebel against what he's trying to get us to do. What is it that God requires of us that we are like, well, I, I don't have time, or I can't do it, or look around at your circumstances, and say, nah, not, not today, not this week, not this month. That God would say, if you would just do as I ask, there's a blessing that comes with it, but you're missing it. You're missing it. That's these feast days. So in verse 1, it says, Observe the month of Abib, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. 
Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord, your God, from the flock of the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. And so I'm sure that most of you uh, know what Passover is, but just quickly in case you don't, on the, the, the end of their time in Egypt where God had gone through all of these plagues to try and convince Pharaoh to let the, the Hebrews go, um, and he kept refusing and refusing. God said, I'm going to send in the angel of death who's going to kill all the firstborn. And so what I want you to do, he says to his people, I want you to go out, I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to kill that lamb. And I want you to drain the blood into a basin, and you're going to take a hyssop branch, and you're going to paint that blood on the top of your doorpost and on either side as a sign to this angel of death who's going to come through and he's going to take the life of all of the firstborn. And you're going to take that lamb then, you're going to roast up that lamb, and you're all together going to eat the whole thing. By the way, you know what he says? No leftovers. No leftovers. They had to eat the whole thing. Darn it. They eat the whole lamb. They couldn't leave any leftovers to the next day. And so that's what they're talking about here is that they were to celebrate in memory the Passover. They were supposed to remember it every single year from that point on that they were to uh, kill a lamb, take its blood, paint it on the doorposts, take all of it, consume all of it in them, and they would be spared from death. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? Sounds a lot like what Jesus did for each one of us, isn't it? The perfect lamb, the sacrifice. Paul would call Jesus the Passover lamb. Paul, way back then. I didn't make this up. Paul would say he is our Passover lamb. Paul recognized it when he was writing to, I forget, Thessalonians or Colossians or Corinthians. I forget which letter. And two of them actually. It was a theme for him. This idea that Jesus was the perfect, spotless sacrifice whose blood was shed, and by the way, painted up onto the cross, he was uh, our sacrifice so that we would be spared the wages of sin, which are death. He did that for us. And that's what they were remembering Passover was being spared the angel of being death, uh, being spared death from the angel of death who was going to pass through, but the New Testament fulfillment of that memorial was Jesus coming as the sacrificial lamb on the cross, shedding his blood for us so that we might be spared death as well, and we are to consume all of him in the sense that we don't take a little bit of Jesus and add it on. It's all encompassing. All of him. In fact, we're supposed to put, as the Bible says, that we become a new creation. The old stuff passes away, and now we're new. We're new. And there is, it's not like we're saying, well, you know, I'll take a little bit of Jesus now, and I'll, I'll put him in a Tupperware and get back to him later when I really need him. It's all of him. It's all. But it's so cool that there's this great New Testament fulfillment of this feast. Now, following the Passover meal... Is verse 3, it says, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. You came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all of your territory for seven days. For you, uh, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day and the remaining day overnight remain until 
morning. And so this is talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so what they were supposed to do was to um, make bread without any leaven, meaning it wouldn't rise. It would just be that kind of flat bread. And he says, remember when your ancestors were brought out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of affliction, um, it happened so quickly at night that there was no time for them to let their bread rise. They just had to take their uh, wad of dough and go because God said, all right, now's the time. Everybody go. And they picked up everything and they left. And so all they had was unleavened bread. And so as a reminder, God says, you're supposed to eat unleavened bread now for seven days after the feast of Passover as a reminder of leaving in haste. But there's a really, really beautiful uh, picture here also in the New Testament where Paul, once again, in that same verse, will go back in and he says, um, purge your life of leaven and live unleavened as an unleavened, unleavened, <laughs> unleavened as a new lump. I love like the New King James Version. I don't know, maybe it says something different if you have NLT or NIV, but I love the New King James because it just calls me a lump. But I get to be a new lump, an unleavened lump. You all is, are being called to be an unleavened lump. And in fact, what really Paul is saying is even in Paul's time, leaven was a picture of sin. And he was saying, look at this. And Egypt was actually also a picture of bondage and the world. And so Paul will say to them and to us is that as God freed them to the, from the bondage in which they were in and then brought them out in haste, they were to live, and remember from, from this point up until Jesus comes, without any leaven, to purge out the leaven in their life. And so Paul was saying, we all have been freed also from bondage of the world as they were. Egypt is the world to us. And now we are to purge out the leaven. So in one sense, he's saying he freed you from the bondage of sin by bringing you out. But he has also given you the power to overcome sin in your life. When Paul says, purge the leaven, he's saying, purge the sin from your life now. And what he's saying is, we were slaves to sin before, but we've been freed from the bondage of being slaves. Now he also gave you the power to overcome sin in your life. Well, we're never gonna be perfect inevitably, somebody will say that to me if I talk about the idea of purging sin from your life so that you can live in a way that's glorifying to God, that pleases God. We're never going to be perfect. I know. I'm human too. I know that we will likely never be perfect here. But here's the thing. The word sin means miss the mark. You probably heard this. If you ever spent any time in church, you've heard this. In archery term, that means when you shoot an arrow at a target, if you miss the target, you've missed the mark. That's called a sin. Well, I'm not an archer, but I've been to Boy Scout camp. I took archery there. I know that if I aim at that target low, I'm going to hit low. If I aim high, I'm probably going to hit high. See, my point is, when I hear someone say, and when I've even heard it rattle around in my own brain, well, we're never going to be perfect, it's often an excuse for not having to try to live a life of purity and holiness. 
it's an excuse that I'm giving myself or that this person is saying, well, we can't, we can't ever be perfect, so I'm not going to try to be. But God says, purge the leaven out of your life, meaning I've given you the power over sin, so, so purge it. Aim high. If you aim low, you will hit low. If you aim high, you'll hit high, likely. I know you're not going to be perfect. And yes, I know we're going to stumble and we're going to give in to sin sometimes and we're going to fall. But I also know that God is merciful and just to forgive us our sins, it says. And it also says that his mercy is new every single morning. So how about this? Talking about first and best, each morning you open your eyes before you roll out of bed and put your feet on the floor, start saying, Lord, I give you this day right now. I give you this day. My, this is my first moment. It's yours now. And I give you the best of the rest of my day. Just take it and let's see where we go. And see where you go. And at the same time say, and Lord, expand my territory. Open up doors that I can share what it is that I have. Because that's what we looked at last week, being part of uh, extraordinary generous, Extraordinarily generous is sharing what it is you have. Remember he says, be a lender, not a borrower. Lend what you have. What do you have? This little light of mine, <laughs> I'm going to let it shine. Right? Shine your light. Shine your light. So get up in the morning and say, God, I give you this first moment. Lord, I give you the rest of the day. Lord, I'm going to shine my light to everybody else around me so that they could see it too. I'm going to lend to everyone. I'm not going to borrow. So, verse 5, you may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord God gives you, but, in the, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name Abide there, you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight and at the going down of the sun and at the time, as the time you came out of Egypt. And so really what he's saying is you cannot do this just anywhere. You need to be able to come and do and keep this sacrifice and this feast in the place that I will determine, whether it's where the tabernacle is or later at the temple. And what we know is that when they came out of Egypt and in that 40 years that they were in the wilderness, there were times when either they were trying to keep this feast uh, and sacrifice at their own tents, or they weren't doing it at all because, you know, it was confusing or messy or there was a problem. And they would look around at their circumstances and they say, well, you know, because of this, because we're here, because of this thing, we don't have the proper equipment or whatever it is, we're not going to keep the feast. And God is saying, there's no more of that. There's no more. Remember, actually, last week he said, I think it was last week, he said, we're not going to do as everyone thinks right in their head. It's going to be now this way, just as I describe it, this way. And, verse 7, you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn it, uh, return to your tents. At six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God, and you shall do no work on it. And he does this beautiful thing where he says, after this incredible feast day and, uh, of worshiping and coming together and feasting, the very, you have the next day off. Isn't that great? How many of you have tomorrow off? How many of you have gone? Yeah, I mean, I, okay, unless you're retired. I forget where I am. I remember a time when we would go and watch the Super Bowl, you know, four, four years in a row when the Buffalo Bills went to the Super Bowl. Remember that? That was great. They didn't win any of those four times, but I remember going and it just being like an amazing time when the first, that first year especially, and it was so excited, but the whole thing is tampered by the, the fact that you've got to go to work the next morning. 
And God says, we're going to have this amazing feast. And then the next day, Sabbath, rest. God is so cool, right? God really does care about you. You understand that? He loves you. He loves you. He's not going to be like, we're going to have this amazing feast. It's going to be busy, and you're going to be like washing clay pots and putting everything away all night long and pricking up after the feast, and then you better get busy about it the next day. He says, then you rest. Then you rest. Thank you, Lord. I love rest. (laughs) Then he says, verse 9, you shall count seven weeks for yourself Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you began to put the sickle to the grain, and then you shall keep the feast of weeks, uh, the Lord your God, um, of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering and uh, from the hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. This, so there's a, there's a lot here, actually. He says you're going to start counting seven weeks or seven sevens, which is how many days? 49 days. The next day would be the feast day, which meant 50 days. That's where we get the name Pentecost. It's the Greek translation. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in, in that version, the festival or the Feast of Weeks is called Pentecost. So, so you probably heard of Pentecost. Maybe not so much the Festival of Weeks. Um, but one of the really cool things is right here, he says that you need to count the seven weeks from the time that you began to put the sickle. And so there was a, a countdown or like a time of anticipation that they knew that something was coming, that they were, they were counting down the weeks to get to that place of this feast day. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that. So um, this was uh, the time of, of Pentecost or weeks is what it was like a, an early harvest, like all the, their crops were just starting to come up. And what they were to do was they were to go out and maybe harvest kind of the front corner of it and bring it all together and wrap it up. But in the process of doing that, they're looking out over their entire field of what they have and what God has blessed them with. And they could see this whole crop that's coming up that God has blessed them with all of this provision based on them harvesting just the, this is the earlier, the first fruits of their harvest. They had harvested up and they could see, look how God is providing for us. And so they were going in to offer that as kind of a recognition and memory of God provides. He's provided all of this. Now it's not harvest time yet. This is the first fruit, the first harvest kind of a thing. But they were to come with this as they were counting, they would count down the days to this time, to this um, a free will offering. So it wasn't described like bring two sheep or you know this many oxen or this much wheat. It was free will. That meant you decide what it is, but it was that first fruit, that first harvest of the field. Now also, this happened to Mark the day that they remembered Moses getting the law, the Ten Commandments from God and delivering it to them at the base of Mount Sinai. Isn't that cool? that they remembered on this particular day also that this was when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and then Moses brought them down. So they would remember on the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost this giving of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, God's saying, this is the way that I would have you live in order to be pleasing to me and to be in right relationship with me. Now, there are some Jewish historians that will point to 
when God spoke to them at Mount Sinai, remember it says that he spoke to them, the Ten Commandments first, and then Moses went up, and then he inscribed them on rockets, something else. So they all heard God speak. In fact, it's, it's, it's referenced more than one time throughout what we've been studying, is that there was actually, verbally, they heard God give them the Ten Commandments from the top of Mount Sinai. There are Jewish historians and scholars who say that the language that God spoke actually included 70 languages. Uh, It was like he was saying, this is a heavenly language that I'm speaking to you so that everybody can hear what it is that I'm saying. It's like this. Um, a, A beam of light looks white, but when you hit it with a prism, it looks like a rainbow. So all of the colors are encapsulated into that one color, white. It's like he is saying, I spoke one language, but within that one language uh, were 70 languages. And the reason they say 70 is because they believe that 70 meant all of the nations in the world. Uh, All of the nations, 70, you know, seven, and you know, I'm not a numbers guy, but (laughs) seven is God's number. 70 was that number of like overall completion. And so he was saying that there are 70 languages that God spoke. And why is that important then? Why was that important then? Well, we know because it says that when they came out of Egypt, it was a mixed multitude. They weren't all just speaking one language. It was a mixed multitude that went out with them. And so God makes a way for all of them to hear what it is that he wants to deliver to them so that they all can hear it in their own language. Isn't that cool? Now, Pentecost. Remember what happened at Pentecost? First of all, Jesus said to him, so he gathered all together his disciples after he had risen from the dead, right? And he got together and he says, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to head on upstairs. But you all are to wait here. Wait in anticipation of a power that's going to come upon you that will uh, allow you to do amazing things. And of course, we know he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so again, here, and, and they were supposed to be counting out the seven weeks in anticipation of the Feast of, of Pentecost, right? Jesus said to them, now, now you're going to go and you're going to wait and you're going to receive the power that I'm going to send to you. And so they're sitting there anticipating this power. And that power, the Holy Spirit, arrives on the day of Pentecost. So it's like God said, then I gave them my word written in stone that how they were to live in right relationship with me. Now with the disciples, I'm not giving you my written word on stone. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit who will write my law on the tablets of your heart which is exactly what we see happening there. So many things are lining up with this idea that, that they were waiting in anticipation and God said, I'm gonna show up. Guess what? There was fire, by the way, in both places, wasn't there? The mountain was burning in Sinai. They saw the fire. They heard all of God speaking in every language for everyone that was there. In Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit arrive. We see tongues of fire above their heads. And what do we learn about languages? It says that they spoke and everyone present heard Peter speaking in every language that they needed to hear, whatever, because there was a lot of people in the city and they were all from different places and they all spoke different languages and they all heard in a language that they understood. It's a New Testament fulfillment of what they were celebrating for so many years now happening on the day of Pentecost. Isn't that cool? 
there's more. You, I don't know where I was. Oh, you shall rejoice before the Lord, verse 11, your God and your, and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord, your God, chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Uh, and so he, again, he reminds them, he's reminding them, and the, these are the, the children of the ones who were brought out of Egypt. Now you shall, verse 13, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floors and from your wine presses. And you shall rejoice in your feast and, and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates seven days. You shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all of your produce and all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. You see, that? rejoice, rejoice. Rejoicing is part of the feasting. Right? This isn't a drudgery. It's like, I can't believe we've got to go and celebrate with God again. Uh, maybe you feel like that Sunday morning. It's like, I'm just supposed to go. I'm just going to go. I'm going to worship God. Or are you coming with a spirit of, I'm coming to rejoice? Seemed like it this morning. Rejoice. So, the Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, man. So, this was a feast that was set apart where they had to build these temporary dwellings, these temporary dwelling places, little huts or tents. And I don't know if you, if, you, if you saw the Chosen show, they had a pretty good depiction in there where they built these like sukkots, these huts, right? And uh, so they would gather together and they would have this feast together for seven days. And it was, it's actually so cool that they would just come together and it, you know, they invited everybody I mean, the men were required, but the women and children often came, as we know, we, know that, we know that Jesus came with his family to celebrate the feast days because he was in the temple one day, and they didn't know where he was. Uh, so oftentimes, we would see the children and the wives and the families all come, and uh, they were all there. And they were to celebrate this idea that they were wandering, that there, that there was so much time wandering in temporary dwellings out in the wilderness. And so they would build these tabernacles. Now, what's really neat is that uh, before, about two weeks before tabernacles, it's not talked about here, but you can look this up. About two weeks before the Feast of Tabernacles is called the Feast of Trumpets. Um, and if, if you're here and you have any kind of Jewish heritage or background, maybe you know what I'm talking about, the Feast of Trumpets, which is actually um, Rosh Hashanah. The Feast of Trumpets was the announcement uh, by trumpets played in preparation for what was to come leading up to what would eventually be this tabernacle. But Rosh Hashanah was this idea of um, 10 days of repentance or what's called 10 days of the awe of God. Right, And so the, temp the Feast of Trumpets was before tabernacles. It was to announce this time of repentance and this time of the awe of God. And it also marked the beginning of the year. It is the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. Right? And that is, um, leading, uh, that is the, the Feast of, of Trumpets. 
And uh, so then um, what would happen is they would come and then uh, after those 10 days, it would end in the Day of Atonement when actually they would, they would, the, 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 the high priest would bring out the, the book of life and they would read through the book of life and they would look to see, uh, actually they, would, they, they, uh, they believed that God brought out the book of life and looked through everyone's words and actions and deeds. And if all of your words, actions, and deeds were more than all of your bad deeds and bad actions, then you got to remain in the book of life for another year. And that's what that's what they believed was going on at this time, and there was so there was this time of repentance, this this uh, trumpets that led to um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then it would lead into Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, one of the really neat things that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles was they did this ceremony on the last day called the Pouring of Water Ceremony, and they would take this big vessel and they would go down to the Pool of Salome and they would fill it up, and it was very solemn. Even though the feast was a beautiful time, this time, the last day of the feast was very solemn where everybody was, was quiet and gathered around, and the, the high priest would bring this big pitcher of water and this gold kind of pitcher, and they would pour it out on top of the altar. Now, nobody really knows when this began or why they started doing it, but they would actually recite the, a verse while they did it. It's Isaiah 12, verse 3. It says this, as they were pouring out the water, they would say, therefore, with joy, you shall draw waters from the wells of salvation. Right? So as they're pouring this water on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would recite this verse from Isaiah, um, therefore we will with joy, we shall draw waters from the wells of salvation. Now, the really cool part is that it was on this day that Jesus stands up. At the f- water pouring ceremony, Jesus stands up and he says this is recorded in the Gospel of John. It says, John... Uh, Chapter 7, verse 37, verse 38, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So during the water pouring ceremony, where it's quiet and they're watching this, Jesus stands up. I wish they had done this part in the chosen. They didn't do it. And Jesus stands up and he says, all who are thirsty, come to me to drink and I will give you living water. And it says here that some of them looked at him and they were like, he's a prophet. And some were like, no, obviously he's the Christ. And other people said, how can he be the Christ? He's from Galilee. (laughs) Poor Jesus, got that over and over again. But many believed. And Jesus was looking at that. He was saying, yes, um, you all have been living in temporary dwelling places. But then you get the living water of Jesus Christ. He gives us his spirit, his living water. So here's the really cool thing. There is no New Testament fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles yet. Not yet. Before, you know, we saw Passover, Jesus fulfilled that. We saw um, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fulfilled that. There's no New Testament fulfillment of Tabernacles. I believe, I could be wrong, But I believe when we will see the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles is when we hear the trumpet call and the Lord comes back and gathers his church up to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will be an amazing feast. We will leave our temporary dwelling places 
and move into our eternal homes where we will be with Jesus forever. And I believe that he's reserved the fulfillment of tabernacles for the end, for the time of uh, rapture and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think that is just going to be amazing. I love how he says, look, there was a feast, I fulfilled it. There was a feast, I fulfilled it. Here's another feast, still waiting on that one, still waiting. But he shows us the fulfillment of the other two so that we can look ahead to this one with excitement and anticipation where we say we are waiting. You know, the idea of the rapture is something that I've always learned about in the church, even from a little kid, you know, we have songs where we sing about it. Somewhere in outer space, God has repaired a place. Outer space? I, you know, do you guys, you know, I know that one. <laughs> Miss that day? Okay. Was, I'll find it. We'll play it another time. So you can just like, uh, it's all about the countdown. It's about the countdown that we know that there's an end coming. Jesus said there was going to come an end. And we understand how time works. It starts here. It ends here. We're somewhere here. Here, I think, actually. But. We're somewhere in there, and there's a countdown that's happening, and he says, you know what? I'm going to fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles. It's going to be soon, and, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be a part of that. You're going to be a part of it. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, sorry. Sorry. You see, the, the, there's a different story for you. The Bible talks about a different story, an eternal separation from God. You don't want that. It's not just being separated. That's hell. Being eternally separated from God is hell. And there are parts of that that's extremely unpleasant. And don't believe the movies where it looks like some just really boring office party. It's hell. It's where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's the, uh, the anguish, the physical anguish that you suffer. And the mental anguish of everything you've ever done wrong and everything you could have done right played over and over and over again in your head for all eternity, completely and eternally separated from God. And you don't want that. He says that when I called them out of Egypt, I did it in haste. What God said to me this morning is that the, the change in heart, the, the, the salvation happens in the blink of an eye. It's not a process. Sanctification is a process. Salvation happens like this. Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins and come and live in my heart as, your, as my Lord and Savior. Done. Done. In the blink of an eye. And then you move through the process of becoming more and more like him. But if you haven't done that and you leave here today and you were to die or he was to come back, you are in serious trouble forever. And I, you know, I don't know many of you, but I love you enough to say really hard things to you right now, to say like, if you die today, you're going to hell if you don't have Jesus. But I have to tell you the truth. I have to. He's going to fulfill all of these feasts, tabernacles. It's coming. In 1 Thessalonians, <laughs> Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Now, by the way, on the Jewish calendar, after tabernacles, there's something called the rejoicing of the Torah, right? 
that was a time that they marked as it was the end of the cycle. So think about that. If tabernacles is fulfilled in the rapture and the marriage supper of the Lamb, then the next thing on the list is the rejoicing of the Torah, which ends the cycle. Makes sense to me. It makes sense that that's how it will happen. Amen? Amen. Look, our time is gone already. How does that happen, Jan? I'm not even going to go. We're going to end there. We'll finish this later. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time and for your word. Lord, I thank you for your presence, for your compassions, for your mercies. Lord, I thank you for your word and that we get to sit here and open it up and how you speak to us through it. Oh, Lord, thank you for your wisdom and understanding. Lord, I love that your word says that it is the glory of God to hide a thing, conceal a thing, but the glory of man to search it out. Thank you for that blessing, how you reward us for looking into your word with such amazing blessing. Lord, I pray that there isn't anything that I'm not doing where I'm missing out on a blessing, Lord, because I'm too lazy, I'm too tired, or I just don't care enough. Lord, strip that all away. Lord, I surrender. I surrender to you. Take my life, Lord. Take it all. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.